0: Hello, this is Breaking Brave, and I'm Marilyn Barefoot. Today, I have the utmost privilege of chatting with Mr. Robert Rotenberg. Robert is a highly respected practicing criminal lawyer in Toronto. He's also an award-winning author of six incredible fiction novels. A good day for Robert is when he writes, works with his clients, and dreams up new ways to murder fictional people and solve the crime. I will add to that good day list when his local audio track works perfectly, which it didn't. So my apologies for the technical bumps in the road. Here's Robert. Today I have the great and incredible privilege of chatting with Mr. Robert Rotenberg. So excited to talk to you. Correct me, I'm not going to go through a big, long, formal bio. This is a coffee conversation. I believe your latest book, which is entitled Downfall, is your seventh, according to the list I've got here.
1: Uh, six. I'm working on seven oh, now.
0: Yeah. So this is number six. You've done Old City Hall, The Guilty Pleas, Stray Bullets, Stranglehold, Heart of the City, and now, just as of what, February 21st, am I right? February 2nd, yeah. 22nd, Downfall. I just downloaded it as an ebook, and I was chatting with you before we went live with this, and I'm 28% through the book, and it is the first book I've actually been able to get my head around reading at all during the pandemic.
1: Well, that's a compliment, I'll take it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Robert, your writing is brilliant, and I'd like to just talk a little bit about the story of you as you came up into this world. My understanding is English lit at U of T, law degree at Osgood, and then a master's at the interna- of International Law at the London School of Economics. But there was this feeling that I got, which I'll ask you to comment on: like, you were you had the master's degree, you had the law degree from Osgood Hall, you kept pushing off kind of that legal thing for a while. So, oh no, I'm going to go to Paris and I'm going to be an editor of Passion Magazine and. I got this law thing, but I'm going to push it away for a while.
1: Yeah, well, I was the most unlikely, if you talk to everyone in law school, I was the one person, I'm never going to be a lawyer, I'm never going to be a lawyer. Um, I went. It's funny, I was just looking at some of my old English uh, essays and, um, and short stories that I wrote. So I was kind of your classic high school English student, U of T English student, thought I was going to be a writer, went to University of Toronto, took a year off to write a book, drive a cab, travel around. I really didn't know what I was going to write about. So I went to, to Osgoode Law School. And the first day I walked in there, I felt like, what am I doing here? I had like, hair down to here, or is, you know, all these incredibly straight people. So within a week, I was at, they had a criminal law clinic, because I always was interested in criminal law. And um, Within a few weeks, basically, I spent three years kind of running the clinic and going to law school a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> and I actually, then I went to the LSE for a year, one of my many attempts not to be a lawyer. Yeah. And then I spent almost 10 years not practicing law. I was, I talked my way into a job in Paris. So I was an editor in Paris for an English speaking magazine. And that's where I started to really learn to edit. And then um, I came back and I started my own magazine. It's called T.O. Magazine. I remember it well. For about six years. And um, the great line about a magazine is, you want to make a million dollars, start a magazine, just start with 10. Uh, (laughs) But we didn't have 10 million dollars. Then I spent a year working as a film executive, which was the most unliked job I've ever had. Oh, really? It wasn't for me being... uh, I mean, I'm, I was good at it, but I also coming to the magazine business where we were starved for money. And then the mm-hmm. government was throwing insane amounts of money at these horrible TV productions. I found it really... Uh, and then I spent a year working at CBC Radio. I worked for uh, all the major shows for As It Happens and what was called Morningside and Sunday Morning. Yeah. And then I was uh, 37. Our first child was on the way, and I had to go back and rewrite my law exams and start my law practice. And
0: so you had to redo your bar because you had, had taken so much time to get back to the bar.
1: <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. So I took $3,000 out of my uh, the visa card and uh, started practicing law. And fortunately, because I'd known all these people at law school who I'd mentored, they were all very generous. They all s- sent me things to do. And 32 years later, I'm still practicing criminal law. So that's so. The day, the very first day I went to court, I thought, "Well, you know, if I'd stayed in the film business, I could be at the Cannes Film Festival right now." Instead, I'm here at Scarborough (laughs) Provincial Court, and I literally went home that day and started my first book. Right, and it's that book in the drawer that we all write.
0: Is it still in the drawer, Robert? That first, it is. Yeah,
1: and um, it was it was pretty good, and it was good enough that I got a good agent in New York. And everyone loved the writing and loved the style, but they said, you know, kind of a cliche story. But there was that one character, that small town lawyer, that scene was fantastic. So I'd spent my whole life saying, like, I don't want to be Canada's John Grisham. You know, I don't want to just write about lawyers. So then I started this book, Old City Hall. And that only took 10 years. And fortunately, that became a very big international. Success. And now my latest book, it says right on the cover, Rotenberg is and is John Grisham. So you can run away from your fate, but it's going to catch up with you eventually.
0: Well, congratulations, checkbox, on that. Although you didn't exactly want to be that. You you've you've been coined with that phrase. It's
1: okay, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> and um so I feel extraordinarily fortunate. I mean, you spent all those years writing and you never know if anyone's going to be interested. And um, I still, every time I, I open the box when they send me a new book, I'm still kind of amazed. Why. The other day we were walking on Queen Street and I see the book in the window. I just think, wow. Because writing is such a, it's such a very strange and insular thing to do. You spend so many thousands of hours by yourself. Then every once in a while you kind of go public with it. Um, but it's this internal voice. And one fascinating thing is now with the internet and email, Yeah, you know, I get emails every day. And I have this kind of running correspondence with people from all around the world. It's, it's, it's quite fantastic. amazing.
0: You want that, I don't know, what is it? An, an assurance and, and, and our,
1: or connection with the human beings that are consuming your work. I think it's more, somebody once, I once read that, Writing is like an intimate conversation or a love affair with strangers. And so all you want to do is touch people, whether you make them happy, sad, laugh, cry, care. Um, And just to think that somehow there's weird magic that you're sitting at five in the morning and putting these little black things on white paper. And one day someone is reading it. It's um,
0: somewhere in the world at five in the morning with a flashlight underneath the covers <laughs> reading the book.
1: That's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what's interesting is it took me a long time to realize um, being a lawyer is a reactive job. If my father was a top radiologist, people come with his problems. He was brilliant at solving them. Being a lawyer, people come with their problems and, and I find ways to solve them. Um, And I never really thought of myself as a creative person. My older brother, David, is uh, probably a top acting teacher in North America. He's written 12 books. His new book, Act, is coming out next month.
0: I had read about about your brother, that you had an older brother, David, and that he had written some books. And I'm like, wow, this family is very creative.
1: Well, it's funny because I still, one day I just realized, It's the exact opposite of a reactive job. It's a proactive job because, you know, the cliche blank page, that's what it is.
0: It feels left brain, right brain to me a little, maybe, in that the the creative side, the right brain, is your writing and the proactive piece and the analytical side, the the business-y side of your brain being the lawyer.
1: Yeah, and the interesting thing, I, I kind of like to say that, being a writer has made me a better lawyer, and being a lawyer has made me a better writer. And I know it sounds like a bit of a, like a little trope, but it's true, because I, I spend a huge amount of time, uh, I settled 95% of my cases, because I really find out who my clients are, what their problems are, I try to figure out the solution. I write very, very long extensive memos to crown attorneys and judges, which criminal lawyers don't do that. Um, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. And, and in many ways, it's the same art. It's the art of finding a character, creating a character, finding out who they really are. Just today, we're, we're talking about a case. I'm talking with a law student and kind of figured out what had really happened. I said, well, this is our theme. Yesterday, I was talking to, I was training someone to testify. And I just said, this is your theme. And everything that you say comes back to that theme, and um, you know, I, I actually took this terrific uh, screenwriting course out of London with about twenty-four people from all around the world. And the main message that the teacher had, which was brilliant, was like there always needs to be theme, and the theme mm-hmm. has to be the theme that's kind
0: of your your absolute truth or whatever it is. It all has to work with in that. I never in a million years would have ever thought a practicing criminal lawyer would be a writer. But <clears throat> and now I meet you. And it all makes sense when you talk about the storytelling. And when I'm reading your book, Downfall, it's it absolutely is incredible. Let, can we talk about your character, Ari Green, and where that individual comes from? I understand he portrayed in the book is the son of um, Holocaust survivors right. but that that mirrors your own life a little bit, not that your family was Holocaust survivors but you're, that you went to school with kids who were.
1: Yeah and you know sometimes they say a writer does best when you, you're, you're next, you're one generation or one step away from something. Um, so um. I grew up in a I guess what you call an upper middle class family my father was a successful doctor. The Rodenberg family were kind of Jewish gentry in Canada, they came here in the 1890s, which is very early. Um, they were yes. very wealthy, and then they managed to lose all their money in the crash. Um, but uh, I went to a high school where a lot of my friends, their parents were Holocaust survivors. My, um, my partner, Alvin Chitlowski, his and his mother is still alive, 96 years old, still mm-hmm. lives alone, still puts hockey sticks in front of the door to make sure the Nazis don't come in um, so I grew up in the basement with with my friends with their they and you have to understand if you're a Holocaust survivor first of all you were poor secondly you had no parents you had no grandparents if you're the child of a Holocaust survivor uh, mm-hmm. you have no uncles or aunts um, I'll just tell you a very little Little story. One day.
0: Oh, I'd love to hear this it. This
1: is just a very simple example. Um, one day, I don't know. Alvin and I were. He was like busy, and he said, "Oh, I gotta go out. I gotta, I gotta buy some denture cream." And I said, "What do you buy denture cream for?" And he looked at me like, "Sorry, I get emotional sure when I think of this." No, oh, of course. He, and he said, "Oh, I gotta get some denture cream for my dad." And I just thought, "What?" And he kind of looked at me like, what planet are you from? Nobody who survived the Holocaust had any teeth. And it made me feel um, like an innocent, you know?
0: Um, We had no idea. We had no idea. Something as simple as that.
1: So two of my friends, um, I'm not going to say who, but they both are facing very difficult medical things. In their families,
0: because of the Holocaust? No,
1: no, just with uh, their family members and uh, the way they deal with it with such incredible internal strength. So I actually have a line. I say that kids of the Holocaust have an extra gear. Wow, they have an extra gear, and, and I believe that, and and uh, I really admire that.
0: Because um, I I was reading your description of these kids, and I I don't believe I know any. I lived next door for a brief period of time to a woman who was a Holocaust survivor, but there's such a strong sense of responsibility in terms of the history and, as you describe it, an extra gear.
1: Well, the interesting thing is that people really respond to Ari Green, and he's not your typical uh detective he's not like a reformed alcoholic or he's not like a Harvard grad who lost everything um he's not yelling and screaming he's very quiet. people often write says like he's very quiet um but um and the funny thing is is <laughs> Well, I don't want to spoil things for you, but... Uh,
0: it's okay. <laughs> I, I don't want you to have to stop talking as a result of me being only 28% through your book.
1: But a lot of female re- writers, re- readers are always joking with me like they'd like to meet Ari and stuff. And, um, <laughs> and I think what they like about him is that he's not a yuppie. He's, yeah. not, he's not thinking, oh, you know, am I going to go to the tennis club today or am I going to go see my dad? It's just, it's what he does. And it's it's not just, it's not, it's not just being a Jewish kid who's uh, like the woman who cuts my hair. She's, her parents were from Vietnam and they, they were on a boat. And Toronto is a city, it's a safe haven city. It's a city of people who are survivors from all over the world. And I see a lot of them in my practice and a lot of them in my friends. So it's not a Jewish story. It's really a story... Of people who've come here because this is a safe place. Yes. And their kids I help bring over uh, seven kids of our nannies from the Philippines. Oh fabulous. Those kids are all incredibly responsible to their parents. Two of the kids are extremely disabled and one of the sons lives with them and both the parents have been struck by COVID and the parent kids are hovering around them. I mean that's that's what immigrant families do,
0: yes, and we can learn a lot from that yeah, absolutely, oh my gosh Robert, where do you where do you get your inspiration for your writing? I mean I get geographically where I understand you don't do it in your downtown legal office, but maybe there are subways involved, I'm not sure
1: <laughs> um you know sometimes I wish i I could commute to work because I find writing on a train is. The greatest thing. Uh, so, yeah, you yeah. picked up. I'm like, When I'm really stuck, during the middle of the day, I'll just sit on the subway and go as far north as I can and back just because there's no one there. Um, I always thought I'd be able to write in my office, but I don't seem yeah. to be able to write here. I can write in my kitchen table. I can write in cafes. It's been hard for me during COVID because I have a cafe down the street. But you're going to see in the book. It's called Fahrenheit. I was going to say,
0: I i don't know where that is in Toronto, but as soon as I read it, I'm like, I'm
1: sure I've been to this place. <laughs> well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it was my routine. Every morning I would go there and get my little Cortado. But I like to stand up usually when I write.
0: I was reading about your standing desks and that you, good for you because you're ahead of your time with that, Robert.
1: Yeah, I just, uh, well, Hemingway used to write standing up, so he was ahead of me.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. I, uh, I sat on Hemingway's bar stool in Havana, Cuba.
1: Hmm.
0: So I guess in those situations, he wasn't standing up because he was having mojitos.
1: That's right. <laughs> many.
0: <laughs> but Robert, when we were arranging this interview or chat, it's called a chat. It's not an interview. You were about to go skating on a lake somewhere. And so this brings me to... You're a big outdoors person with hiking, with snowshoeing, with ski trips with David Israelson to Ellicottville. With You love the nature, and I just wondered how that works in terms of feeding your creative soul.
1: Well, ideally, I either want to be right in the middle of the city or on a canoe totally in the wilderness. And anywhere in between, I'd rather just kind of skip over. Okay. Yeah. And actually, for years, um, I had a routine. I would. Go to a cottage and I would write for a few hours and then I would spend about two or three hours paddling. I find physical repetitive work is really really good. Agatha Christie said she got her best ideas doing the dishes. Yeah, you know, you just need something that where you're physically. I mean, I I do a lot of distance riding, um, bike riding and and running, and I find that I tend to think scenes in scenes and chapters. So I'll just take a chapter and I'll just kind of think it through in my head. Um, But I find physically it's, it's, uh, you know, in a funny way, the writing is the easiest part of writing. It's the thinking and it's really hearing and and thinking through the the stuff. That's, that's the hardest thing. Sometimes I'll tell you a secret. You can't tell anyone. Okay.
0: (laughs) We may have to cut this then, but okay. <laughs> I'm, dying to, I'm dying to hear the secret.
1: I have this, uh, this little arch. It's called a 10-minute, it's a piece of styrofoam called mm-hmm. the 10-minute arch. Yeah. I put my timer on. I put a towel over my head, and I lie down for 10 minutes. And wow. I just try to do nothing else but just think about whatever part of the book. I mean, you'll see the book. My books are very, very complicated. They're not just a straight arrow. There's all these different characters coming in and out. And they're very, very, it's, it's like this giant puzzle I have to put through in my head.
0: Game of chess.
1: It really, really is like a checkerboard that you have to put together. Yeah.
0: The Queen's Gambit, which I loved. And when she was, you know, lying on her bed with the whatever the hell the pills were. That I really this-
1: got that. I thought that was a really nice Nice way Because you can
0: see, I can tell immediately that some of the thrillers that I've read, mystery and thrillers that I've read are nothing compared to what I'm into with you, because it is clear that there is no straight line. And so I haven't likely met all the characters yet, but it's fascinating because you've got to figure out how the pieces are going to work together and how you're going to surprise and delight and shock all of the various readers. It's fabulous.
1: You know... I never think of my books as thrillers or mystery novels. Um, I didn't even know there was such a thing as you know, genres of books. I like to say my favorite mystery is Scandinavian, of course, and someone dies at the beginning, kind of, I'm not sure, and then there's a kidnapping and there's a suicide, and there's someone else is killed, and, there's, uh, and then there's a big fight at the end. It's 500 years old. It's called Hamlet. So, I mean, I think that's a really great mystery. So when I started writing Old City Hall, I wasn't trying to write a mystery or a thriller. I just was writing about the world I lived in, which was mm-hmm. police and and reporters, crown attorneys and defense lawyers. And just I just kind of saw the big soup, you know?
0: Well, I think especially for people that know the city of Toronto, your reference of the kind of, the way it's a bit of a travelogue, where the, the the wonderful thing about writing fiction versus nonfiction is that with writing fiction you can tell the truth.
1: I'm so glad you said that. I use that line all the time, and everyone laughs at me. Yeah.
0: Oh no, not at all, because there's so much incredible depth and accuracy to everything you're doing and so a small story and then i'm going to i'm going to jump to your culinary skills here robert mm-hmm. i went to branksome hall grade 7 to grade what used to be 13 and i lived in the west end of the city so when you're talking about the humber valley golf course and you're talking about the humber river like this was where i lived so i was particularly like magnetized towards your book because of all that but I'd have to take the subway all the way from Royal York Station to Sherburn Station. And one of the things I had to do was walk over that big bridge. Now, we were little kid, well, young kids, young girls in our little kilts. And there was an awful lot of homeless people that were living under that bridge. And we would be a little bit, it was kind of like the billy goat's gruff. We'd be a little bit afraid to go over the bridge because sometimes the guys would just, you know, jump out and try and startle us or whatever. Nothing bad ever happened, but... As soon as you start to talk about this homeless encampment and, you know, bridges and down by water and down by ravines, I was like, I was reliving it because I'm born and raised in Toronto. So I totally can relate to all the spots that you're referencing.
1: Well, one of my clients, James, he lived uh, under that bridge for a few years. And in the winter, I would have to give him Tim Horton's cards and, you know, just keep him going, keep him from freezing to death.
0: When you drive, or I don't know now, because we're living in Coburg, so I don't, I don't know as much about it now, but when we used to drive down Rosedale Valley Road, and depending on the time of year, if it wasn't, if the trees weren't full of leaves, you could look up the sides of the embankments and see all of the Plastics and lean-tos and cardboard houses and everything up there. So you worked with somebody who actually came from this world, Robert, did you?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm a criminal lawyer. So rich and poor, I defend them all. Yeah.
0: Is that something you're comfortable in talking about in terms of your criminal? I, I know you've had some big cases. You, you do it all. You do it from like petty shoplifting right through to the big M word. It, is there one that we would know about that you can at least
1: mention? Well, you know, I've done so many cases and a few of them, it's very strange because the ones that get publicity, it's kind of helter-skelter. Um, hmm. But the one thing I can tell you is since the books came out, I haven't done a big murder trial because that's kind of the life that I portray. I mean, it's it's so incredibly intense. Yeah. But there's a part of me, it's funny because just today... Because for years, I settled every case. And just today, uh, we have a case that's clearly going to go to trial. So I feel a bit like the old gunslinger saying, okay, I'll take the guns off the wall. And now, uh, you know.
0: We'll get to it. Yeah. Absolutely. You're, uh, you're cooking. You make your own peanut butter. (laughs) Excited to learn that. And during this lockdown, or whichever version of this lockdown we're talking about, you've made bread, but you started making lemon soufflés. Am I right about this? Tell me the secret of a good soufflé, because I've never had the courage to actually attempt one.
1: Okay, I'll tell you something. Go to the New York Times website. There's about three or four different recipes. And then if you go on YouTube, you can get a few other hints. But it's actually easier than it looks.
0: Is that right? Yeah, but you need the right
1: pan. The trick is separating the egg whites and really getting the egg whites right. If you okay, Fantastic. email me later, I'll, I'll email you some recipes. <laughs> it's one of those things that looks so much better than it 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 seems, you know. You need the right, you need the right pan though.
0: Okay, I'm on it. Linwood Barkley asked you, does writing get easier the more you do it or more difficult? Because you don't want to repeat yourself and Maybe you could answer that question. I'm not Linwood Barclay, but what do you find as you're now on book six?
1: It's funny because after I finished the first book, I went into the reading with Linwood, who's a lovely, generous, and fun, great guy. And I said, do me a favor, tell me it gets easier. And he looked at me and goes, nope. <laughs> um, I think what gets easier is you You know your mistakes more. You You know how to... You learn how to be tighter with dialogue. You learn how to not let the backstory be a rock and the road to the main story. You learn how to create characters more economically. You, you learn different, different tricks to open and close chapters. And you have a sense more of the rhythm of the way you want to write. Um, so I think the technical side becomes not easier, but you get better at it. Yeah, okay. But... It's like everything in life. I'll tell you, Marilyn, my whole goal in life was to go to a bookstore one day and see one of my books. I thought I that would never happen. And this weird thing happens. You, you walk in the store and people see Old City Hall and they're buying it. Like, wow. And then about six months later, you walk in and you see, you know, man, it's got a whole shelf. I've only got one book. And then suddenly you want a whole shelf. So Ooh. I think that's life. So for yourself, you just keep raising the bar. Yeah. So I think what's harder is that you are faced with whatever talent that you have, and you can't you can't just hide away from that. It. And it's not just the demands of your publisher or your agent or the readers. If it's not internal, it's not going to work. It's yeah. you want to create something that's better than the last one. And actually, this new book I'm doing, I'm trying something very different. And. Wow. Uh, my publisher i was i kind of gave them two options i could do another standard book not that my books are standard they've changed a lot but or but something very different and they said no we'll go for this so so i'm spending a lot of time lying on the floor with the towel over my head thinking <laughs>
0: <laughs> because all the things you learned and the technical stuff we just talked about maybe doesn't apply so much to this book if you're trying something different but you're pushing yourself into a new place and are you enjoying the process or is it torture
1: Oh, a bit of both. (laughs) It's it's like screenwriting. Screenwriting is a totally new thing. And I think I'm, I have no pretensions of thinking because I can write a book that I can screenwrite. It's it's like the difference between riding a bike and surfing. Um, But I'm, I find it challenging. I think in the end, you know, Duke Ellington said there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. And Mm -hmm. I think in the end, you're just always searching for good writing.
0: Absolutely. You've been involved in some TV stuff, though, Robert. You worked on a couple of episodes of the Murdoch Mysteries, did you not?
1: Yeah, yeah that was real fun. I love doing that. And I'm, in fact, I'm just finishing co-writing a whole new TV series idea I have with a writer and I sold another idea. So, And it's a bit frustrating, to be blunt, because uh, the people who did Murdoch had to rights to my books for years and we couldn't get the TV show produced. And, um, you know, Europeans are very, very good like that. Um, most really popular European writers have their books made into terrific TV shows. Uh, one of my I favorite see. writers, Andrea Camilleri, I love his books. And there's a whole series called the Montalbano series, which I've actually seen them all uh, get them in translation. They're fantastic. Uh, Donna Leone, who writes books set in Venice, her books are all made into TV shows. Uh, John Lacari's books, um, a few of them have been made into terrific TV series, but Canadian producers just don't do that. It's very, very frustrating.
0: And because I
1: get emails all the time, like, when's the TV show going to happen?
0: I imagine. Yeah, I imagine. Because why don't Canadians do that the way they do in Europe?
1: When I sold Old City, The Rights to Old City Hall, that was 2009, before Netflix. And I said to them, my. Books are not a murder week. They're not law and order. they they're they need room to breathe, you know. Yeah. And back then, people they were great, but they said, look at no one's doing movie of the week, which sounds like a dated term. That was before Netflix. Mm-hmm. So the hope for not just for me, but for other Canadian writers is that Canadian broadcasters, to be candid and blunt, I think are twenty years behind the time because no one's doing it in Canada. Yeah. The hope my screenwriting agent, sounds so Productions, is uh, is that with Netflix and Crave and all these people coming, and they're saying that they want to produce Canadian content. So that's hope. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't write the books to be on TV. I write them as books, but they're obviously very, uh, very visual. I mean, the city is a real character, and you know, the thing that always drove me crazy. I remember I was, in, I just saw this essay I wrote in grade 12 saying like Canadian movies and stuff are kind of pretending to be nowhere as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like a lot of people say to me, why aren't your books at New York or LA? Well, this is what I know. That's right. And you know, we grew up in this kind of Canadian content era. Yes. But the next generation doesn't care about that. They, like, My kids, they're not growing up thinking, Oh, I wish I was in New York or like to them. Toronto was the place, and yeah. so I don't see why we should. You know, I'll give you an example. I thought Schitt's Creek was terrific. My son and I watched the whole thing. The only frustration I had is why couldn't they have actually said it was in Canada? Like, yeah. like I just you know. Um, so I mean, in ways, I'm very fortunate because I get letters from people all over who used to live in Toronto, who've never lived in Toronto, and and Toronto's a character in the city. Yeah, does it limit my sales in the states or in Europe? I don't know, but there's really nothing I can do about that. I don't think so. I mean, after so. Hamlet's set in some tiny little city in Denmark. So exactly. I think location matters. I think it. And Toronto's a great city to to write about because, unlike when I grew up here and when you grew up here, when it was such a boring middle class place. I remember Sunday nights, my mother would say the kitchens closed, so what? were were options? Chinese, maybe Italian, roast beef at the Royal York. That was kind of it.
0: Yeah, there wasn't much. The world was flat when we grew up. I mean, literally, pretty much, right? So when I say
1: to my kids, we had no sushi when I grew up in Toronto, like, what?
0: <laughs> oh, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Is this um, creative brain of yours running through your children? Are they thinking? Because from what I know of you at this point, Robert, is... You wanted to write right from the very beginning as soon as you possibly could. Like in elementary school, you were doing creative writing stories and taking every English and creative writing class you could. Are your kids showing any in- interest in this world?
1: Well, I have three kids and I, my oldest, I managed to convince him not to go to law school. And he's a, well, my kids are very good writers. You can probably figure out. Um, but he's, he's an extraordinary he's, sales business person and he's Excellent. incredibly creative at that uh my middle son is a very very accomplished musician okay oh, yeah and he runs his own music he wants to be musical director and both my oldest sons are amazing cooks do much better than me and then my my daughter is the engineer an interesting thing. she's an engineer she's an engineering student but she's also a terrific writer she kind of has both she said to me one day, said, dad, you know, engineers can't write. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know but I can. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know. I, I, I'm very careful. I never really talk about my career with them. Um, I don't make a big deal about it. I right. don't really want them to think about it. None of mm-hmm. them read my books. I actually don't want them to read my books. I don't have any posters up in my house or anything like that. This mm-hmm. is my office here. Um, so I just think, you know, this is just what I do. And to them That's it's great. just, you know, they'll just say, Oh dad, I heard your book came out. I said, Yeah, yeah, it's doing okay. It's all great. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Robert, do you have a ritual um, or anything that you love, love, love to do when you when you I do not I don't I don't know the process well enough because I've never published a book, but when you finish the book or when your publisher or when your editor says, Okay, we're there. It's perfect. Is is there some kind of thing you do for closure or a ritual or a wow?
1: Okay, I'll tell you another secret. I I have a little star system. Okay. So if I read a paragraph that I I think it needs work, I'll give it one star. If I've got like a simile that I think isn't very good, maybe it'll get two stars. If it's something that I think is really needs a rewrite, I give it three stars. And then timing is a really, really complicated thing in my book, What Happened When?, so those get mm-hmm. hash marks, one or two. Okay. And then there's something with lawyers, lawyers, where you're talking about word reps, where you're using the same expression over and over again. Yes. I remember the first book, I had the phrase leaned in 11 times. Mm-hmm. And I only oh. allow myself to use words suddenly twice in the book, most. So, and sometimes I'll be, okay, I've got 60 stars. So then a good day will be if I can eliminate 10. <gasps> and then when I finally do the word search, And there's no stars (laughs) and there's no hash marks. It's like, ah. And then what I do is I hire an actor. And uh, for three or four days, an actor, male or female, will read the book to me. They have a copy. I have a copy. And I've got two or three different colored pens in my hand. And it's very, very, uh, first of all, I don't let them pre-read it. No accents or anything, they just do a straight read. Um, The last one I had to do in Zoom, otherwise I like to do it in person.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: Very, very intense. And you hear every time the pacing slows down, every time it gets boring, every time it's confusing, and you hear the whole book. Now you can uh, can now do that on your computer, you can have a friend read it to you, but I like to have an actor read it to me, someone very objective. Uh, and amazing. then, of course, I have, you know, weeks and weeks to go to kind of fix that up again. It, it's it's. Scott Fitzgerald said there's no writers, there's only rewriters. And the fact that you're after a year, you couldn't read a book and that you're so quickly into my book. Yeah. Um, my goal, I like to say I write um, airplane reading for smart people. Oh. I want the books to be easy to read, like Steve Jobs said, easy is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. And I don't want people to worry about that. I don't want them I, I want it to just glide through. So to me it it's like making dough. Like, okay, whether it's the lump, you gotta just you gotta smooth it out, smooth it out.
0: And airplane reading and that may you may have hit on it for me, Robert, is airplane is a is kind of a sacred place for me, which I haven't been able to go because I do work all over the world. I get a crisp new book. And it's like a coveted friend that I carry with me onto the plane. And I sit in the window seat, not because I want to look out, but because I can kind of lean in and crouch in and get my book. And that's coveted time. Because nobody can reach you. It's like, this is my special time. So maybe with Basically, people not being able to travel. Maybe that's been my biggest problem, <laughs> is that I haven't been able to read a book because I haven't been able to be on an airplane. But I have never heard of someone hiring an actor to read read their book to them. But I could totally see how that would be magical for you.
1: Yeah, it's hard, and and it's funny. At some points you start laughing, some parts you start crying, some parts you you know, um, and then all of a sudden you go, oh my god, I thought this book was done. And sometimes you find one character knew something that they couldn't have known until like four chapters later. So you know, right. I'm a lawyer. So I, I put, give you all my little secrets. It's no big secret. I put everything in a binder Yep. and I, with page number with, you know, yep. one, two, three at the top of each chapter. I write, I make myself write in capital letters, three things. Cause each chapter is from a different point of view, a mm-hmm. different character, very old fashioned kind of writing, actually. Um, so, Character, where the action takes place. And here's the important thing. What happens in that scene? Okay. So one thing has to happen in that scene. And that's the theme. That's the thing I have to accomplish. In right. That chapter. Okay. I'll put all those single pages into a binder with like, and then I'll literally sit there and flip through and talk through the book. Okay. This yeah. happens and this happens. And, oh, wait a second. How did Green do that? Because, you know. And I spend endless hours doing that. It's a puzzle. And, and you, in the end, you need to satisfy the reader. Um, so, for example, I don't know who the killer is, but um, I know maybe I do. but
0: Maybe. Maybe just for today, you've forgotten just for me. Right.
1: <laughs> but um, the interesting thing is when I was, when I was writing Old City Hall, I had this uh, teacher, Michelle Berry at the Humber Writing School, which I now teach at, and yeah. she said to me, she said, there's this sense in your book of people stumbling around trying to peel back the onion, as we say, in law, trying to find yeah. out what happened. And she yeah. said, never lose that. It was great advice. Um,
0: because, it's, it's, it is absolutely true. So
1: Yeah, I have a favor to ask you. Can, I, of course can anything. we talk about the first paragraph? Because I like talking about openings of books.
0: Yes, because I was going to go there before wrapping up about, I read somewhere in during my research about you, Robert, that you love to go to bookstores and love and love to read the opening lines of books. Yeah. Like just because that's the gripping piece where you were talking about Frederick Forsyth and the Day of the Jackal and how, yeah. you know, it was whatever kind of rainy day in France, it was a great day for an execution or however that, you know what I'm saying.
1: It's cold in Paris on a February morning, comma, when a man is about to be executed. That's it.
0: So yes, let's talk about first paragraphs. What would you like to say?
1: Okay, so to me, an opening sentence, a really strong sentence has internal conflict. Starts in one direction and then it takes an unexpected turn. And what that unexpected turn does is that creates conflict in the sentence? It creates tension, and it creates interest. Yes. Um, an opening sentence needs to have a, a sense of rhythm, and I think every word in the opening sentence has to have a why. Yeah.
0: Okay. Is, so, when do you write your opening
1: sentence? The one thing I always do with book is I always write the opening chapter first. In one book, that ended up being chapter four, but I think I'm good at killing someone at the beginning of a book, usually. But then I have no idea who, why, what happened.
0: Then the pieces have to start coming together.
1: Let me talk about the opening to Old City Hall.
0: I was about to say, you've got a bunch back there. You could, yeah, let's talk about that
1: one. There's five things that you need to accomplish, I think, in an opening paragraph. Okay. You establish a character. You have to establish the setting. You have to establish action. So if all you have is action... You've got an American thriller where someone's jumping out of a helicopter or kidnapping the president. But who are they? Who cares? If all you have is a character, then um, you have a French book where they're talking about food for 10 pages, right? (laughs) So, um, which is fine in all own ways. But uh, so you want a character. Remember, characters aren't aren't just standalone one-dimensional beings. They're people of family. People have jobs.
0: Yeah, there's depth. So
1: character, action, setting. But then that's not enough. You have to have voice. You have to have a voice of the character. Mm-hmm. And then I think the secret ingredient people know. You have to have emotion. Oh, yeah. Because if you don't care about that character or that opening.
0: You'll stop. You won't keep going.
1: I can tell you, most literary agents, most publishers, they know within the first page if you can write or not. You know, DJs say they only have to listen to ten seconds to know the songs. So, if you're a student of mine, I make you write the first the first paragraph five times. Five times I critique it. Then I make you find your five favorite books and write out by hand the first paragraph, and then do it again. Yeah. Because it, it, it's it's like you know, is doing scales. Mm-hmm. So the opening line to my to Old City Hall is. Remember all these things that I told you.
0: Yes, the five things.
1: Okay. So much is the first word. Much to the shock of his family. Think about what it's probably going to lead. Mm -hmm. Mr. Singh rather enjoyed delivering newspapers. Now, I went back and looked a while ago. When I first wrote that sentence, I wrote, much to the utter shock of his family, Mr. Singh liked to deliver newspapers. And I kept looking at that, looking at uh, what's wrong with that. There's mm-hmm. many things wrong with that. The first is I was trying to replicate Mr. Singh's voice because Mr. Singh is a 74-year-old gentleman who used to work for Indian Railways. He's mm-hmm. a British Raj, so he talked about Tuesday next and rather enjoyed. So the word utter, like, oh, I really enjoy it. But the problem was I put that word before Mr. Singh. hmm If you had read that, it would have been one of the reasons not to read the book. Hmm. Much to the utter shock, you would have thought, much to the utter fourth word, you would have thought, it's a very weak writer. He's got to use this flowery language. It doesn't work. So now it reads, much to the shock of his family, Mr. Singh rather enjoyed living in this And there's a rhythm to it.
0: It's interesting how, you're absolutely right, the first sentence you wrote, I'd probably, if I was in the bookstore and flipping through and I saw that, I'm like, eh. But just with a couple of tweaks to that opening sentence, I'm like, yes.
1: Okay, so here, do you want to hear a few other opening sentences?
0: Yeah, I'd love to.
1: So here's Stray Bullets, which is my third book. Yeah. The books are all based on what's happening in Toronto. and I love that. Basically based on that horrible Boxing Day shooting. Yes young Jane Friba. and also the turning point of the city kind of gone from a small village to a, yep. to a big city.
0: Toronto the good was no longer the good.
1: Okay, here we go. This was the longest opening um, paragraph I've ever written. Okay. And you're allowed to laugh at the end, so I'm setting you up.
0: Okay, good. I promise I will.
1: <laughs> it was bad enough working in the kitchen of a donut shop for minimum wage But having to wear a hairnet was even worse. Especially since the Tim Hortons uniform they made Jose Sanchez wear was at least a full size too big. Made him look ridiculous. Made it hard to talk to Suzanne, the pretty young server who worked out front. Not that it mattered. She had a boyfriend, a punk named Jet. And why would would he be interested in, in an illegal immigrant to Canada? His so real name was Jose Sanchez, but Dragomir Ozera, and who wasn't a chef from Portugal, as he told his employer, but was a Romanian linguistic student with a warrant out for his arrest. Fucking hairnet.
0: Love it. Fucking hairnet.
1: Fucking hairnet. So, can I read you the opening to uh, Downfall?
0: Please read me the opening sequence or the opening paragraph from Downfall, because it was just yesterday that I read it, but... You had me at hello. Maybe I had you at
1: because. That's the opening line.
0: <laughs> okay, perfect.
1: Now, my grade A English teacher, Mrs. Angus, would have been very mad at. Me.
0: I had one of those teachers at Branksome Hall. Never where, start a sense
1: with because, right? Or but. No, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, doesn't that, because make you want to? Isn't it because what? It doesn't. It isn't it a why question?
0: Absolutely, and and I haven't been able to put my phone down with your ebook. So obviously, because worked. So, again, anyone who's listening, I want
1: you to think about what I said about the opening sentence. Mm-hmm.
0: And the five things.
1: The first paragraph. And, and then, in the end, I always say to people, are you in or are you out? Yeah. Because there's no middle ground. Yeah. You you know, as your reader, you're, you're investing. I mean, it's an extraordinarily pretentious thing to think that I could write something and that people have to actually spend all these hours reading it. And so if, you, if you're gonna invite people to take their time to do it, I think you have an obligation to make it as good and as fun and as meaningful as you can. So here's the first paragraph, you ready? Yep. Yeah. Because the subways in Toronto didn't run early enough, Gemma Roshan had no choice, but to ride his bicycle to work. His wife, Babita was not pleased In Canada, it is dark in November and you don't even have a light, she said when he was getting dressed to leave. She was right, of course, but what else could he do? They needed to buy diapers for the twins, and the rent in their one-bedroom apartment was due in a week. I promise I will be careful, he told her as he was rushing out the door, but she refused to kiss him goodbye. In seven years of marriage, she'd never done that before. So after you read that first paragraph, were you in or were you
0: out? I was totally in.
1: That's what I want to hear.
0: Because you know there's something about to happen. You've got me. You've totally got me. I'm curious about him, his wife, the twins, the family, the we don't have enough money. And now you've got to ride a bike to work. And then when I start to get into the story, I'm picturing this guy riding along Bloor Street to go over the Sherburne Bridge. Because that's how I pictured this whole Humber River situation going on. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, I, I got to let you go because I got to finish the book.
1: <laughs> okay, so when you're halfway through, you have to email me, tell me who you think did it. Three quarters way. I will. And and I'm going to give you one hint. Okay. Do not look at the last page. I never do that. When you finish the last sentence, go back and read the first sentence.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Thank you. Robert, how do people find you? They find you at?
1: Just my name. Google it. Um, You can buy the books from my website. You can also buy them from independent sellers. So please do that if you can. Yes. And um, buy them online. We don't have an audio book at this one yet. We have audio books of all the others. Okay. And um, I think we're up to about 850 polls at the library, the Toronto Library.
0: And you've been very involved in Save Our Libraries.
1: Oh, yeah, that was great.
0: And thank you for that, because that is so important. It isn't the big, huge, like, robart size library down it, at U of T. It's the little baby ones that are in the communities where it is the central foundation, if you will, of the community.
1: Actually, in the second book, The Guilty Plea, um, you might identify with this. The main character is a small-town, brilliant small-town girl who's kind of Outgrown her town for complicated reasons, and her refuge was the library. That's and so the library becomes an important thing. And then, of course, her husband is found murdered, and uh, she's a suspect. So, you know, that's the great thing about living in Canada. Is we live in a democracy, and we believe in public schools, and we believe in equality of education and healthcare, and and opportunity. And I think that's uh, that's one of the things that. I think through this pandemic, we've all come to appreciate the country a lot more.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. All the little things, the teeniest, tiniest little things. And I hope we don't ever lose track of them ever again.
1: And so my last pitch is, there's a school called Central Tech in Toronto, where I go at least once a year and they study my books and they're all these downtown kids. It's great. They Mm -hmm. do essays, they do covers, but most kids in Ontario are still reading the books that you and I read in high school.
0: Oh, my God. Is that right?
1: Yes. Okay. They're still reading Lord of the Flies, The Catcher of the Rye, and To Kill a Mockingbird, a book about the American South, full of the N-word, where Black characters are, are one-dimensional. And mm-hmm. you talk to teachers, they're all frustrated. They, they've got, like, 30-year-old copies of these American-British books. So yep. here's my campaign. Canadian students should be reading... Canadian books. I'm not talking about my books. They should be reading Canadian novels.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for this joyous conversation. I want to meet you when we can in person, and I want to try what you you talk about having at the Fahrenheit Cafe a cortado.
1: When you're in Toronto, we're going to we're going Fahrenheit for a cortado
0: I would love that. I would love that. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for your gift to the world of all this brilliant writing. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at MarilynBarefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.